Good morning. I know that you know that we come here to worship the living God. But I also know that you know that believing Him is something that we all have to relearn on a regular basis, like every Sunday. We have to learn how to believe. And how do you know when you're believing? You know when you're believing when you're not scared anymore. You know when you're believing when you have been freed up. Freed up to take your mind and your preoccupations off yourself and just to give yourself away. That's what we call love. And if we believe, we learn how to love. Folks, friends, visitors, I'm encouraging us all to lean in and to discover again what it means to believe. If only that we might then learn to be freed to love to love those who are like us and to love those who are not and to love those who don't like us. That's love. That's belief. And that's worship. And that's why we're here. Uh, there's a word that you hear probably every week, um, and it's the word secular. And uh, that word is bandied about to make a case that Western civilization is becoming increasingly, if not exclusively, secular. And when they use a word like that, they use it in opposition to that which is sacred or spiritual. That if we're getting more secular, it means we're taking our eyes or commitments or anything off, anything of the the spiritual and material realm and giving all of our attention to the tangible realm. But that use of the word secular is actually a betrayal of what it originally meant. To be secular was not to be in opposition to the spiritual, not to be in defiance of the sacred, but actually to give your full attention to what the real world was based upon what you believed about the spiritual world. That your spiritual understanding directed your attentiveness, directed your presence to the secular world, to this world that you wiping babies and cooking meals and... um, seeing patients and teaching school. That's your secular world, but it was informed by your spiritual understanding. That's probably a a clearer and a more original sense of what secular meant. But um, I know that that meaning to it is lost to most of us. It's lost to me too. But what it really meant is that the number one secularist in the entire universe is God. God is a secularist because he has his attention on everything on all his creatures and all their actions, but from a heavenly perspective. Now, we've almost maybe gotten too heady for our own good to begin with. So um, let me um, pull up something that uh, from your collective memory or, or your collective entertainment uh, repository that might speak to what it means to be secular in that original sense. Uh, go. <clears throat> so how about you, Vi? How's school? Nothing to report. You've hardly touched your food. I'm not hungry for meatloaf. Well, it is leftover night. We have steak, pasta. What are you hungry for? Tony Ridinger. Shut up. Well, you are. I said shut up, you little insect. Till she is. Do not shout at the table. Honey? Kids, listen to your mother. She'd eat if we were having Tony loaf. That's it! Hey.
Simon J. Palladino, a longtime advocate of superhero rights, is missing. Gazer being. Bob, it's time to engage! Do something! Don't just stand there! I need you to intervene! You want me to intervene? Okay, I'm intervening! I'm intervening! How many times in my household has one or both of us said, Bob, it's time to engage. (laughs) To be secular is to be engaged. It is to be present. Bob was not present. Bob was called upon to be present, to be attentive to the world he finds himself in, but not just attentive, to be responsive. Folks, we're in a series in the Psalms because we think the Psalms are not just prayers. We think they tell a story about how God is writing something in history. And we believe that the Psalms are telling the story that God has a particular posture to his world. And that posture is one of presence. Engagement. And because no servant is greater than his master, Jesus said, then guess what? If you are in him then you are called to be engaged, to be present. And the question is, what does that even mean? Because it's a big word. Presence, not even a verb. But what does it mean to be present? We're going to listen to a psalm that, that is very unique, and it is spoken to and about one particular individual, and yet that particular individual has implications for everybody in whose influence they are. So I'd like you to listen to Deborah Sabrance. Is she going to read from a psalm? 72. We want to figure out what does it mean to be present. I wonder if you would stand to hear. Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. 
and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the top of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Among the Psalms, this Psalm falls into the category of what's called a royal Psalm because you heard it as a prayer and a prophecy for the king. Um, and that kind of talk may sound either unfamiliar to you or uh, just a little bit creepy. Um, cause right, this country, we, we cast off kings. We like thought kings were a bad idea. So we have presidents. <laughs> um, We got rid of kings, and whenever somebody speaks so glowingly of a leader, it feels a little bit like North Korean state TV. Um, What do you do about something like that? And and yet I would, if you will, um, lightly push back against that sense that maybe this is unfamiliar or too creepy. Um, Cue up the the scene from inside the rotunda of the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. If you look up, that's what you'll see. Um, A mural by Constantino Brumidi who sounds like a middle reliever for the Yankees, but was actually a great artist. And um, he painted this called the apotheosis of George Washington. I challenge you to use the word apotheosis at your next bowling league. Um, Apotheosis is the glorification, the deification of a person. And there's George Washington. And what's he doing? He's, He's sitting with his hand pointed towards the heavens, pointing to the book of the law. And uh, he must have been cold because he's wearing a blanket. I don't know what it is. But he's surrounded by these uh, six or seven tableaus, um, each of which represent a pillar upon which American society rested, uh, commerce and science and agriculture and research. And so there it is. Um, That sure sounds like um, a paean of praise to a leader. Uh, So it's not so unfamiliar to us. And, And neither should we be creeped out by that. Because look, Why do we hallow George Washington? Because he demonstrated a kind of leadership that both validated his authority, but also in which he embodied certain virtues that ought to be true of the entire society. Psalm 72 is speaking primarily, if not exclusively, about a king. A king for which Israel prays. A king for which Israel waits. But in that king demonstrating the virtues of which Psalm 72 speaks, it's also speaking about the virtues that might be true of every subject of that king. And so, yeah, we're listening to a psalm in prayer and in prophecy of a king. But I think it's also inviting us to consider how the vocation of the king is the vocation of everyone of whom they are subjects. And that vocation is to be present to the world. So what is that presence? What does it mean to be present? We're going to talk about four aspects of presence. The practice of it, the purpose behind it, the potency in it, 
and the privilege to it. So let's get started. What is the, the practice of presence as this psalm speaks of? As you might have noticed in Psalm, in verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. And then in verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Prosperity, peace. It's actually the same word translated in different ways, and it's the word you've all heard before. It's the word shalom. That word shalom is far more expansive than just sort of a shalom, shalom, dude. Yeah, it's more than just saying greetings, more than just peace to you. It's speaking of this concept of flourishing. Wherever there is flourishing, there is shalom. And so you will hear that what the psalmist is talking about is the pursuit of something. And that pursuit is the pursuit of shalom. In verse 16, it says, May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities. People got to eat. If people got to eat, grain's got to grow. And if grain is meant to grow and people are meant to eat, then people are meant to blossom. And so shalom is talking about flourishing. And so the practice of God being present to his people is the same as the practice of presence by those people. And that is to seek the shalom of the world. And to pursue that is not this sort of nebulous thing. It's actually something very concrete. And it's primarily about overturning whatever limits or constrains shalom. So if you listen in verse 2, it said, May he judge your people with righteousness. And your poor with justice. May you defend the cause of the poor and deliver to children of neediness. Would you have pity upon them that you may show their life? He's talking about injustice. He's talking about oppression. He's talking about deprivation. And all of which shalom is out to overturn. The king is called to act just as the people over whom He presides in that same way. That's the pursuit of shalom. And Psalm 72 makes a a pretty good catalog of what it means to pursue shalom, but it's by no means exhaustive. In fact, um, I've been here for a little over three months. And in three months, I've already seen all of these things happening in our midst. Why was there a juried art festival? To bring shalom to a world in which beauty is increasingly put to the margins. Why did we have an event bringing awareness and action for the sake of refugees? Because in this world, if you've lost a home, it is a kindness to show them a new place, a new community, a new sense of, of groundedness. That's, that's restoring shalom to people's lives. Why is it that we're, we're doing knickers for a new life in Uganda? To ensure that they continue their education when they otherwise might not. That they might flourish where they are. Why is it that we're doing Operation Christmas Child to bring provision and encouragement to people in far-flung places? That's The pursuit of shalom. Why is it that six or seven guys are at Craggy Correctional Facility as we speak? To bring the news of hope to people that society has essentially discarded. And why is there Grace Brevard? Why is there Grace Foothills? Why is there Grace Blue Ridge? Because we believe to pursue shalom is to spread the message of a God whose primary interest is in bringing shalom to the whole world. That's 
The practice of being present. That is about honoring God's intentions for the world and restoring it. And all of it is based upon what you heard in verses 13 and 14. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and precious is their blood in his sight. Precious is their blood in his sight. He's speaking of an inherent, irrevocable dignity of those unto whom he is called to be present, which should sound familiar because we spoke to it several weeks ago. As we near the end of this series, you're going to hear a lot of threads sort of converging here in one big grand finale. But the practice of being present is driven in large part by a belief in that inherent dignity of humanity, which you may think is a given. But folks, if you look around human history, it's not a given. And it's not even a given that that will be a functional principle going forward. To be present is to seek the shalom of the world, believing in the inherent dignity of those to whom we might be present. Now that sounds great in principle, and I'm doubtful that anybody in this room would go, I don't think I'm for that. Nah, maybe later, somebody else's problem. On the contrary, though, here's the deal, though. Um, It may be great in principle, but in practice, it's a whole other thing. Um, Because if you're going to persevere in it, you need something more than just we ought to do this. Um, you actually need something behind it. You need a weight behind you. You need a reason to persevere. And that's where we're getting into the conversation about what is the purpose of being present, as this psalm outlines. Um, it should have sounded familiar at the beginning of our worship service. Um, we reiterated a text that we had preached on a few weeks ago, and that was Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad, O Lord. Let all the peoples praise you. Why did we start with that? Because in verse 17, you heard this. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. What you heard in Psalm 67 is what you heard just here. And that is because Israel's interest, Israel's vocation to be there for the entirety of all nations is a massive biblical theme. And it is a lot older than Psalm 67 or Psalm 72. All you got to do is go back to Eden. Whatever Eden is trying to tell us, it is very clear that God had original intention of shalom and that intention was established. And then by Genesis 3, that vision for shalom runs aground. But by Genesis 12, God is back on the hunt to restore it. And so you heard, as our one of our readings at the beginning of the service, you heard that interest in restoring shalom rekindled by birthing a nation through Abraham. Abraham is called, a nation is born, that nation is blessed, but so that it would bless all the families of the earth. God chooses one nation with all nations in mind. Psalm 72 is just proof that that promise is still on God's mind. And still in Israel's heart. That vision was kind of lost like a message in a bottle. And Psalm 72 represents kind of like somebody grabbing that bottle off the shore and opening it open and seeing that and go, oh yeah, that's who we are. That's who we're here for. The purpose of being present as God has been present to us, as this prayer is being offered in Psalm 72, the purpose of it, is to fulfill that original promise that God has made even before the world ran aground. 
That too is a massive biblical theme. And seeing the practice of being present in that light for that purpose, that's crucial. It's crucial because it will shape our motives. And motives matter. When it comes to fulfilling the promise of the purpose of being present, then the test for being present to this world cannot be whether they are like me, whether they like me, or whether I think them worthy of receiving any kindness I might show them. Those can't be the tests by which I decide whether I will be present to my world. Rather, just as the king enunciates that precious is their blood in his sight, so we choose to be present not on the basis of their worthiness to receive it, but on God's worthiness for us to give it on his behalf. Let me summarize that from somebody that you may have heard of. His name is John Calvin, and he said this. The Lord commands all men without exception to do good. Yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. But scripture helps in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. He's changed the nature of our motives. The purpose fulfilled in this practice of presence is driven by a different motive, not on the worthiness of those who might receive our kindness and not whether they like us or are like us, but because they reflect the image of God in themselves. Motives matter. And the purpose of God directs us to all and not so that we might primarily placate our own conscience. Because let's just be very honest with ourselves, rhetorically speaking. How how many times, how many acts of our so-called compassion are more to reduce our discomfort and mitigate our sense of awkwardness and uh, less so an effort to genuinely alleviate the sorrow or trial that they're in? Motives matter. When you see that motive... It changes the motive for you being present. And when the practice of that presence is out to fulfill that purpose, then you discover a third thing about being present. You discover its potency, its power. In verses 10 and 11, um, you hear about other nations that are not Israel coming to Israel With great respect. You hear, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And you hear that and you think, okay, that maybe some of that's that creepiness again. Okay, here's, here's other nations coming and sort of paying tribute. uh, And you think they're just doing that because they're fearful of him. That they're intimidated, and so the best way to ingratiate themselves with him is sort of bow down and bring tribute. But if you weren't listening carefully, then it's the next verse, the first word, that helps you understand that their motive is not out of fear. Listen to verse 11 and 12 again. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. That little word, for, 
It's explaining why they're coming. It's explaining why they're streaming to Israel and paying him tribute. It's not because they're driven into submission before him out of fear. It's because they've been arrested by the king's compassion. His practice of being present for which it's praise leads the nations to be stopped in their tracks. And not because he's rattling a saber, but because he's come to the defense of the needy. That is the king being present to his world and the king is subject, the king is present to his world through his people. And that is the potency that is part of what it means to be present to the world when you're fulfilling that purpose. How do I know? Rewind. Circa. A.D. 350, Emperor Julian. We're talking about maybe 30 years after Constantine. Julian was no Christian. Despised Christians with all great um, fastidiousness. But in a letter that he wrote to one of his cabinet ministers, he was bemoaning the fact that Roman society could not hold a candle in their way of compassion and kindness like the Christians could. And he's trying to encourage his cabinet to sort of Encourage the people to be kind. So in his letter that's preserved for antiquity, he says, why do we not observe that it is there the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives, but they have done most to increase atheism. And atheism in that day meant anybody that didn't believe in the Roman gods. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. He's saying they are shaming us in the kinds of generosity that they're doing to this world. Folks, the church isn't even 300 years old. And it's having that kind of impact on the highest echelons of power. Do not tell me that there is not potency in a world, in a church being present to its world. Circa 350. Okay, how about circa yesterday? I heard from David Todd. He's at Craggy, six other guys. They're on a Kairos weekend with inmates, some of whom will never leave that prison. And they are being present to them in love, in kindness, in encouragement, and with the gospel. And David says, stuff is happening. And so what I'm telling you to do is to pepper them with questions. To ask them what has happened. Because I dare say they are a not even 24 hour old illustration of the potency of being present to people who has thought, who have otherwise thought they were forgotten or of worth nothing in between. It's because they believe in the inherent dignity of those men and in the power of the gospel to speak into their lives and to be present to them. I dare you. Ask them. You sent them. You have every right to ask them what happened. And they're going to be telling us their story. When people practice the presence of God to fulfill his purpose, there's a potency in it. There just is. Okay. We've talked about the practice of it, the purpose of it, the potency to it. And right now, you're probably just pooped. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Ask social workers if they're tired. Ask teachers if they're tired. Ask caregivers if they're tired. Ask parents if they're tired. Stop laughing. 
It's true. To be present in all those domains is a weakening, depleting effort to be sure. But there is also a rather insidious thing that can happen in your effort to be present to your world. And that's why I have to make this observation from this psalm before we land this plane. And it is this. This psalm that speaks of this king, the one for whom they prayed, the one whom they waited for, that king never showed. There was no coronation of any king like that. The the ordination exam trick question When you go on your trials, they'll ask you, so, name me three good kings from Israel's northern kingdom. And the trick is, there are no good kings from Israel's northern kingdom. Yeah, I know. Um, The caliber of comedy equal to that of NPR. Um, No king showed like this. Not David, not Solomon. They had a blight upon their history. And in some ways, that's a good thing. Because if you and I are ever to fulfill the mandate, the encouragement to be present to our world, we're going to need more than a model to us for us to to inspire us to it. Because it is true that there was no king that ever sat on Israel's physical throne. Nobody fulfilled this until much later. There was a king who came but did not come with pomp and circumstance, did not come with pedigree or heritage, did not come in majesty, but came in weakness. And it was that king who, even though this psalm, the ideal king is envisioned, we do have a king who came and incarnated that presence in our midst. That king's virtues are outlined in Psalm 72, but in Jesus they are demonstrated. Though the Shalom Project is reaffirmed in Psalm 72, it is in Christ where that Shalom Project came to a head and came to remedy the depths of our need for a real Shalom, not just in the world, but in the human heart. That king did come much later and not in the way that they expected. And even if that king had appeared, it would not have been enough. Because you and I need more than a model. We need more than somebody to inspire us to action because that inspiration will only last of a certain kind. You and I need somebody to work at the innermost depths of our being so that we will not think that we will never ask the question, am I being present enough? That will always be the wrong question. To be present as he intends is for us to be present to our world present to our families, present to our neighborhoods, present to our workplaces, present to our schools, present to our enemies on the basis of how he has been present to us. To be present is to love. But it is to love not so that we will be loved, but to love because we trust that we already are loved. And there is only one king that is confirmed to us and purchased for us that love that can never let us go. And that is the king who comes to us in Christ. And that's why this psalm calls us to be present. I have a child who I remember as plain as day many years ago, who at one time saw me take a big stick and break it on my knee. And it was within weeks that I see this child out in the front yard saying, 
knocking a tree branch over his leg. And he goes, I'm strong like my daddy. If you are the son or daughter of a king, you will not simply be content with knowing that their love is real. You will want to act as they do. That's love. And in Jesus, we are shown a king who has come to show us his love so that we might be freed to love and it might not be frightening anymore. We all know what it's like to be close to somebody but not really present. This is inviting us to be present. But as Christ has been present to us. Let's pray. Father, if we are intimidated or wearied by the very idea of being present, I pray that you would remind us of how your kindness has come to us, not to make us weary, but to take our, the yoke of your son upon us that we might not be heavy laden and that in that wearing that yoke, we might find that there is a privilege, a privilege in being present to your world as you have been present to us. Oh, teach us what that means. Help us to see the world in which we are trading in, the the multiple worlds we find ourselves in, and help, help us then to be present, but only because we believe that you have been present to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.